Welcome to the second episode of the Pop Culture Papers. We will be discussing 2016's La La Land. Hello everyone, I hope you were able to find some happiness in your week. Mine primarily came from driver's license and One Direction, so do with that what you will. Today we will be doing two papers because I didn't realize I wrote two papers on this movie until I found them. The first one will be a one-pager and the second one will be about four pages, so definitely not as long as last week, but hopefully still as fun. <laughs> to contextualize these papers, let's talk La La Land. It was released on December 9th, 2016 to critical acclaim and starred Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone as struggling artists in Los Angeles. It was directed by Damien Chazelle and won six Academy Awards for Best Director, Best Actress, Best Cinematography, Best Original Score, Best Original Song, and Best Production Design. So that was a lot and it was nominated for a lot more too. The scenes we'll be discussing today are the dinner argument and the ending. Fun fact, the dinner scene was one of the most rewritten scenes in the movie with the leads creating realistic dialogue to ground the movie, whereas some of the scenes in the movie are more fantastical. So onto the first paper, it's titled Pop Culture Portrayal hurtful messages. This was for my dark side of interpersonal communication class and we did a lot of these pop culture portrayal papers or one pagers for the week to analyze communication concepts. Um, some I will be defining because even I forget what they mean but this one's pretty straightforward hurtful messages. I really liked this class. The professor was a tough grader but he was fair and bonus his brother-in-law was my honors high school history teacher and I was one of his favorite students in high school so maybe that worked in my favor. <laughs> Also one of my favorite teachers. Um, I barely remember writing this. It was a 1am fog as I had just turned 20 and started working at the House of Blues in Anaheim, the new one that was not no longer on Disney property. And it was a slog that whole first month. So a lot of these I will just be barely remembering. Pop culture portrayal, hurtful messages. Pop culture phenomenon La La Land portrays two artists falling in love in Los Angeles, but like all relationships, me and Sebastian's wasn't perfect. Focusing on a specific scene, hurtful messages were directed at each other, first about their professions and then their personality traits. At a surprise dinner at home, the couple talks about the future and Mia asks if Sebastian likes the music he's playing on tour because she doesn't understand why he'd give up his dream of opening a jazz club if he doesn't like the music. He takes offense to the starts saying that he thought this is what she wanted him to do and that he's finally doing something people like. She says, Since when do you care about being liked? Why do you care so much about being liked? You're an actress. What are you talking about? <sighs> Maybe you just liked me when I was on my ass because it made you feel better about yourself. It becomes quiet and she's leaves soon after. Our textbook states that informative statements are often rated as extremely hurtful above all other speech acts and that was demonstrated as Mia tearfully responded. Are you kidding? Being an actress can also be seen as a personality trait for her since it is so deeply a part of her. He was also lashing out about his own securities because no one likes jazz and because that's also deeply ingrained in him. He could see that as also meaning that no one likes him the way he is. It's also noted that blame, intentionality, and motivations could determine the statement's level of hurt. In this case, Sebastian blamed her for not telling him to not join the band despite it being a steady job. He intended to hurt her through his statements, but his motivation to join was for their relationship. So in short, 
that scene still hurts my feelings to watch. Um, it is, it's a really well done scene and I could see why they rewrote it so many times to get it right and realistic. Me and Sebastian aren't perfect, but you root for them because you want to see their dreams work out with each other, even though... Spoiler alert, that's not the case. Speaking of the ending, that brings us to our second paper, which I will be calling La La Land and New Criticism. This was for my reading cinema class in my last year, so two years after I wrote the first paper. I had an awesome professor for this one, so a lot of papers will also come from this class, and I'm not gonna lie, I don't exactly remember what the assignment was, but I'm guessing it was to analyze part of a movie through a specific film theories lens, because that's what I did here. I remember the day I wrote the bulk of this paper, I was in a real funk, um, I wasn't feeling great. I passed on a big work event for a number of reasons and decided I was going to put in my two weeks notice and was soon to be in arguably single. So as I wrote it, holed up in the library after work, parts of it felt like I was talking to myself because the movie seemed to affect me differently at every age and I just didn't know it. Um, but yeah. <laughs> Not to like emotionally dump on this episode because everything is fine now, obviously, but yeah, that's just what I was going through during this. La La Land and New Criticism The 2016 film La La Land's final dream sequence and ending left audiences emotionally charged because of our expectations versus the reality of the lives of the characters we so deeply cared for by the end of it. It follows our lead, Sebastian Wilder and Mia Dolan, as they both chase their dreams of jazz and acting, respectively, in Los Angeles while falling in love through song and dance. This sequence lends itself well to new criticism in that the scene itself contains irony, tension, paradox, and ambiguity. Deconstruction also happens as it takes what the audience believes and wants as a happy ending, but doesn't make it a part of the real plot line to undo the viewer's expectations. Through this combined approach, the full meaning of the scene is embraced as we are challenged to see a different way for this to be an acceptable ending for both characters. If you feel a little lost now, um, don't worry, I am defining new criticism and deconstruction in the next couple of paragraphs, so stick with me. <laughs> Robert Dale Parker states that new criticism's key concepts are paradox, ambiguity, tension, irony, patterns, symbols, and unity. The first four are the pillars in which this analysis is built, seeing as paradox displays opposite ideas. Ambiguity suggests multiple possibilities of meaning. Tension shows ideas that connect but are simultaneously distancing themselves from each other. And irony expresses meanings that are different connotatively in a phrase or word than they are usually meant denotatively. To summarize the sequence, five years have now passed since me and Sebastian last saw each other. She is now married, has a child, and is a successful actress. All her dreams have come true. She and her husband walk into a jazz club and see its name Sebs, giving her the realization that his dreams have also come true. Sebastian sees her and begins playing their theme on the piano, then a dream sequence occurs. It begins at the beginning of their relationship, and after the point where their relationship ends in real life, it takes place on a movie set. A life where they ended up together and both their careers took off in the best way is seen. They get married, get a house, have a kid, and live happily ever after. It's what could have been. As the song ends, they share a smile before Mia leaves with her husband content with their lives as they both know this is truly what they wanted all along. And it breaks my damn heart every time. <laughs> 
The paradox of this scene is that it shows a dream and it shows the reality, which are clear and complete opposites of each other. Sure, both endings are seen as happy by our protagonists, but the romantics in the audience would be dismayed watching this as many believe they were supposed to end up together. The film argues a more realistic viewpoint where most movies would have had her leave her husband on the spot or start an affair in some way. It gives you what the viewer ultimately wanted to see through the dream while giving you what it believes you need to see, which is that me and Sebastian don't end up together and that's okay too. The scene's ambiguity is subtle in that it seems straightforward as they smile and part ways, but so many thoughts and emotions flash in those few seconds, hesitation, possible regret, hope, acceptance, and then happiness. There's no ambiguity in the dream sequence itself. It shows a world where they could have realistically shared a life, but lets the audience know that, that this is not what's happening as the characters watch the alternate life on a screen and see how it would have played out. Me and Sebastian's shared smile is ambiguous. They could mean different things by it, but what's unambiguous is that their lives are now separate. My note here is I think I've read this scene as far more ambiguous than it really is. I feel like it's extremely straightforward um, now watching it. Um, but this again was for argument's sake in that through the lens of new criticism, it could definitely be ambiguous. We don't know. I do still agree that a lot of emotions flash during those last couple seconds and it again hurts me. The tension in the scene is that it's clear that there are still residual feelings from the relationship triggering the sequence, but as a viewer, you're made to be okay with it and nearly wonder if it will end like a traditional romantic movie or they take the realistic route. That tension finally breaks once Mia walks away and Sebastian goes back to playing the piano, but the intense moment between the former lovers is clear and present, which is why audience take it so personally. The irony is that usually such a romantic sequence would cause our characters to fall in love all over again and run away with each other, but doesn't, and we're meant to take it at face value that this is ultimately the end of their relationship despite all that has happened previously. It's what makes it feel real. To let me and Sebastian end up together would nearly cheapen the experience of the film by unironically letting them to be together even though we now know that they are fine and thriving apart. Deconstruction, as stated by Parker, does not destroy or remove meaning, but instead multiplies meanings and continues to circulate those multiplying meanings and to defy any sense of a single or stable truth or essence. Deconstruction offers many meanings, but not any meanings. If you were confused by that, <laughs> um, reading that out loud, oh boy, um, you should see my brain right now. Combining this with new criticism to analyze the scene puts a new lens on it to show that while the elements of paradox, ambiguity, tension, and irony are in play, so are the multiple meanings of the scene in the way it completely unravels itself from traditional Hollywood conventions and offers many readings of the scene that the viewers can take into account. It can be argued that there are many different universes in which the movies could end, all with different outcomes, such as the two we saw, but also other possibilities we didn't see. Them ending up together and being miserable, then ending up together and both dreams failing, them ending up together and happily giving up their dreams for each other, and so on. With it being coupled with deconstruction, it disassembles viewers' expectations by giving a message that disrupts where they expected it to go and takes a route to happily ever after that doesn't involve one another because one of the multiple meanings of the scene is that falling in love can push you to great heights, 
but if it's just for a season and happens to have a long-lasting impact after you split up, happiness can still be found because that's what you were both chasing after in pursuing those dreams and that's perfectly fine because life isn't a beautiful musical number we make up in our head and things often don't go the way we want them to, but sometimes they go the way we need them to. Can you tell my self-soothing kicked in right at those last couple sentences? <laughs> Where it's like, oh, don't worry. Even if you leave your job and this guy breaks up with you, everything's gonna be okay. Hopefully. Yeah, that's basically what I was trying to do. Even though I've been talking about this concept since basically it came out when I was 19 because of other things that happened around when I was 19. But yes, this is something that is important to remember in that not all failed relationships are time wasted or even considered failures. Sometimes it's just what you needed. La La Land takes me and Sebastian's seemingly bittersweet ending and makes it something beautiful and thought-provoking when we see it through new criticism and deconstruction by picking apart an acceptable ending in the scene with the scene inside of it where it showed them watching their potential life together. It shows the audience what they think they want, but it turns it on its head when it's coming back to reality by showing them that this is what's right for me and Sebastian. This analysis and theory combination strengthens this ending's power because it is not what is expected of a romantic movie. It can be more deeply understood through its multiple meanings and facets in the way it shows reality. And that brings us to the end of this second paper. So what has changed since La La Land? I am in a much better state than when I wrote either of these, but you could say that about any of my papers. I just watched it again. It still made me cry. I wonder if the person I watched it with would still cry at it because they did not stop for a whole hour after coming out of the theater at first watch. I will not out him on this, but that happened. I noticed Sonoya Mizuno and Jessica Rothy and Tom Everett Scott in this movie for the first time. Sonoya was in Crazy Rich Asians. Jessica Rothy stars in the Happy Death Day movies, which I absolutely love. And I'm just a big fan of Tom Everett Scott. He's great. I didn't even realize he was Emma's husband in this. Mandy Moore, who did all the choreography, now does the choreography for Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist, which I highly recommend and I love it. It's on NBC. Damien Chazelle will release a 1920s Hollywood movie by this year's end called Babylon, which should be good. Benj Pasek and Justin Paul, the songwriters for the original songs, also did the songs for The Greatest Showman, a song for The Flash that I personally love, uh, songs for Aladdin, and the upcoming Snow White live action, and they will have their musical Dear Evan Hansen adapted to film very soon, hopefully. And that is a wrap on today's episode. Thanks so much for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe on wherever you listen to your podcasts. Again, big thank you to Mandala for letting me use She Don't Mind as my theme song. You can find them at MandalaCT everywhere. This was written, edited, produced, and artwork by me. You can find us on Instagram at Pop Culture Papers, on Twitter at Pop Culture Paper. And if you're interested in reading the papers, I upload them to a Google Drive on my links every Monday. So watch out for that. And I'll see you next week as we live to write another day.